Life groups are a great place to go deeper in your faith and grow in your walk with the Lord. I just love it in my life group because I get to love and be loved in community. They help you go deeper than just coming and saying hello to people at church on Sunday. If this is something that's interesting to you, please check out our website and we look forward to being in contact with you.
Well, good morning. Welcome to worship. We're continuing our series on the good life according to God. And we're talking about Paul today. We've talked already about Nicodemus, about Barnabas. We talked for two weeks in a row about Mark. Today, Paul, and we'll be coming at this theme, this series, The Good Life According to God, through the lives of people. Uh, so uh, it'll be fun to see who comes up next in the series. So Paul was a champion for living the good life according to God. Paul had been educated in Jerusalem under Gamaliel, the greatest rabbi of the day. Uh, Gamaliel's grandfather was Hillel, the greatest rabbi uh, possibly of all time. And, and so Paul comes from a very rich background. Uh, he was affluent. Uh, he was capable. Uh, he was uh, in every way an impressive person. A true blue Jew from the tribe of Benjamin, uh, also a Roman citizen. Uh, so Paul brought a lot to the party. Uh, he was a champion for living the good life according to God before meeting Jesus. In that case, he was zealous for God and for the law. And when he first heard about these people claiming that Jesus was the Messiah, uh, he didn't like it. Uh, he persecuted them. Uh, he was after them. He wanted to shut that down hard because to him, it was undermining, it was distorting, it was denigrating uh, the good life according to God. Of course, then on the road to Damascus to uh, persecute followers of Jesus, he has an encounter with Jesus. He uh, meets Christ. He's knocked off his horse. He becomes blind. He's sent into the city. A man prays over him to be healed. And Jesus actually speaks to him along the way. So now Paul is an ardent follower of Jesus. His, his name has changed from Saul to Paul. And uh, so here he is now, a champion of the good life, but in Christ. Uh, and so Paul was realistic about what it cost God to make all that possible. He was also realistic about what it costs us to live the good life in Christ, not costing us in terms of earning it or deserving it, but what it calls out of us uh, by way of a cost uh, for living the good life that God has created us for. So that's what we're going to talk about today. Uh, Paul wants us to understand that the good life comes with a warning label, uh, and you know how warning labels go. Uh, they're meant to alert us. Uh, to danger, uh, not to take away from the product or the service, but to say, you know what, be careful uh, how you use this product or this service. Uh, I read recently about uh, a guy who uh, learned the hard way that safety razors aren't necessarily safe. He had this new flashy safety razor uh, he was enamored of, and he was trying to put the safety razor blade in the razor and cut his hand in a very bad way. Uh, and he learned that the warning was serious. This is a safety razor, but it's super sharp. So Paul gives us a warning label uh, about the good life. And so he says in his letter to the Philippians, chapter 1, verses 29 to 30, for it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. Since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now here that I still have. Uh, so the Philippians were aware that uh, the church in Philippi really started because uh, Paul was being Paul, proclaiming the good news. And one thing leads to another, and he's thrown into jail. And out of that episode, a, a congregation, a church, is started in Philippi. So the Philippians know about Paul's suffering, uh, but they also know that he's continuing to suffer. And, and now they are also struggling in that, 
there's a cost to naming Jesus as Lord and Savior when there's some who would say uh, that's a distortion of Judaism or some would say that is an insult to Caesar. Uh, so uh, he says uh, that he has struggled and now they're struggling. So he has some credibility here. Uh, Paul literally has gone through some serious struggles. Uh, he was beaten many, many times. Uh, uh, crowds, mobs, being offended by what he was saying. Pagan mobs, uh, Jewish mobs, uh, Roman mobs. Uh, he was shipwrecked three times. Uh, at one point he spent uh, most of a night floating in the water, treading water to stay alive. Uh, he, was, he was caned uh, by, with a, a, a rod, a, a wooden rod by the Romans. Uh, he was uh, whipped with the cat of nine tails uh, by Jewish authorities, uh, 39 lashes, uh, 40 was the, was the punishment, but they backed it off once so they wouldn't go over the designated amount. So he'd had some significant, significant suffering along the way. He'd been stoned to death, uh, left for dead, only to get up uh, dazed and walk back into the city of Ephesus. Uh, that, that blew people's minds. Uh, he's been arrested a, a number of times. He sat in prisons. So Paul knew what he was talking about with great authority and credibility when he said, you've seen me struggle, and I'm sorry to hear that you're also struggling. Uh, so i got to stop for a second and say, look, we need a new marketing team in here. What, what kind of brand messaging is this? Telling everybody right up front, you know, you're going to struggle. Well, it's Paul's integrity. And uh, we're going to see that uh, for Paul and for anybody who has learned to walk with Christ, suffering is no longer a sign that you failed. Uh, suffering is no longer uh, seen as uh, something you've done wrong. Uh, suffering is the inevitable pushback, and sometimes outright persecution, of standing up for Jesus in a world that in many ways is still uh, either indifferent uh, or even hostile toward Him. And so if the good life is a godly life, why would it include suffering? Anything, when you say uh, anything is godly, it sounds so good, you wouldn't expect it to invoke uh, require or, or invite suffering. Well, Paul says suffering is the reality of living faithfully for God in a fallen world, in a world that, like I said, doesn't either understand what it means uh, to know God, to obey God, to serve God, or they're threatened by this information that there is a God and that their idols perhaps are inadequate or holding up themselves to be godlike uh, is inappropriate. Paul uh, wants us to know that we're suffering not to earn something or to show off, but because we're resisting evil, because we're serving God, because we're caring for people. Think about it. Anybody who resists evil is probably going to suffer. Uh, John Lewis, who was just honored uh, in a number of memorial services for his long service in Congress, was jailed 45 times uh, through his participation in the civil rights movement. He was beaten a number of times. Why? He, he didn't, it wasn't like, I have nothing to do, I think I'll go get beaten up and thrown in jail again. It wasn't like he's trying to set some new record about being incarcerated. It was because he was resisting evil. And in resisting evil, he was willing to pay the price of that resistance, which was to suffer, to sacrifice, to serve. So, Think about caring for people. If you care for somebody, if you love somebody, and they're hurting, you're hurting. If they're suffering, you're suffering. If they need your care, uh, that's a sacrifice. So really, when we're in love, when we're moved deeply, 
when we care about a cause or anything at all, we're willing to suffer for that cause. We're willing to sacrifice for that person. Uh, we're, really, we're, we're willing to stand up against evil. We're willing to serve God because we know it's so important uh, that people be blessed in His name. And we care for people because we've learned that love is the only thing that makes life worth living. And so really, uh, we are all about the prosperity gospel, except that uh, we're not the version of the prosperity gospel that says, name it, claim it, uh, God owes you, uh, your wish is His command. Our version of the prosperity gospel is that the good life according to God allows us to prosper in suffering, in sacrifice, in serving God and serving others in His name. That's what we consider uh, the good life and the prosperity life. It's a new way of looking at it. We prosper as we grow in the context of suffering and sacrifice and serving. Powerful, powerful lesson Paul wants us to know. And so he tells us uh, three things about the good life according to God. First, that the good life according to God is worth suffering for. Secondly, uh, he tells us that the good life is living fully for God and trusting Him by faith, no matter what we experience. In, in walking with Him, obeying Him, trusting Him, serving Him. And thirdly, uh, we possess an identity and a hope that this world cannot provide, nor can they take it away. So in this good life, uh, we have an identity and a hope uh, rooted in heaven, given to us by God, that nobody can rob us of. Um, nobody can get between us and God unless we let them. So let's get back to this first point. The good life according to God is worth suffering for. I can't convince you to believe this or that this is true, except as I did a few moments ago, to appeal to your experience in, in learning how to love. And so in that basis, learning to love God and learning to love people, we realize that the good life according to God is in fact worth suffering for. If you're a parent, your child is worth suffering for. Uh, if you are taking care of a parent who... Uh, is uh, at the end of life, uh, you know it's worth sacrificing for. Uh, you know if you have friends who are going through very difficult circumstances, uh, your service to them is worth it in every way. So God made us for the good life and invites everyone to receive this good life. Uh, nobody is, is, is turned away if they come by faith. As they repent of their sin, as they submit themselves to the love of God in Christ. They are welcomed into the family of God. This is important uh, because whatever we value most, whatever we give our hearts to, whatever we commit ourselves to will conform us, will shape us. Uh, a good example, as I've given already, a parent is shaped by what they do in learning how to love a child. A husband is, is shaped, conformed by learning how to love a wife and a wife a husband. Likewise, in a negative way, uh, a person who wakes up every day saying, I can't wait to have another drink, and to drink all through the day, is going to be shaped and conformed by that. A person saying, I can't wait to find drugs. I can't wait to take advantage of people financially. <laughs> I can't wait to lord it over uh, people and, and control them. Uh, that will conform and shape you as well. And so Paul writes to the Philippians and says this, I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this, 
that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. What he's saying is you are uh, a person in progress. You are being formed by God himself. This work he started in you is going to be developed so thoroughly it'll be transformational for you. He'll bring it to completion. Uh, the, the word here, completion, is the word also for perfection. Brought to its fulfillment. Completed. Exactly right. You might not see yourself that way right now. You think, oh my gosh, I am a work in progress. It's a three steps forward, two steps back progress. Um, but, but guess what? God is at work in you. And as you walk with Him, as you trust in Him, as you lean into Him, uh, you are going to be transformed to the point that at some point beyond this life, uh, you will be uh, a new creation in Christ. You have that identity now, but you'll see the fulfillment of that um, far in the future. Now then Paul goes on to give many examples of why Jesus is the good life. And then he says in, in chapter 3, verse 12, not that I have already obtained all this, or have already arrived at my goal to be complete in Christ, to be perfect in Christ. But I press on to take hold of that for which Christ has taken hold of me. That's powerful, isn't it? So he's in this partnership. He's being transformed by God, and it motivates him to go for it, to strive, to reach out. Not out of a sense of emptiness and lack of fulfillment, and if I can only prove this or accomplish that, then I'll be okay. But rather, because of what God is doing in me, I am so motivated to keep going for it, to experience more of it. When you experience love, you want more of it. When you experience goodness in anything, you want more of it, right? That's what Paul's talking about here. Now, he wants him to understand that God is bringing history to a conclusion, that history isn't just a, a circle. It's not a cyclical thing. Lots of ideologies and religious points of view would say there's this wheel that keeps turning. Biblical theology tells us that history is going somewhere. It, it, it concludes. It ends. There's a fulfillment. There's a new heaven and a new earth. There's a judgment. And so Paul is marching with God toward this new creation, this point of fulfillment. And we each have a part in God's plan. He calls us to be faithful and courageous as we trust in Him, moving together uh, toward this beautiful uh, conclusion. And so Paul describes how he's learned to deal with danger, suffering, and sacrifice in the midst of that, in the meantime, in the mundane day-to-dayness of life. He says this, I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. Have you learned those lessons? Have you learned to be content in all circumstances? We're going to talk about what Paul means by that in a moment. But then he says, I can do all this through Him who gives me strength. This is God's power at work in me. I'm struggling with all His power at work in me as I experience this. And then he says, And my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of His glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. I just gave you a, con, you know, a, a condensed version of that longer passage, Philippians 4, 10-20. So let's look at this. Paul is content but not 
complacent. There's a big difference. You know that. He is joyfully living intentionally for Christ. And that's the key here. He's joyfully living intentionally for Christ. Let me give you the secret uh, to staying in love. Live intentionally. Uh, The secret to a great marriage, be intentional, be present. The secret to being an effective, loving, uh, if you want to use the word successful parent, be intentional. Stay focused, be engaged, be fully present. If you are intentional, amazing things happen. If you're not paying attention, amazing things might happen, but you're not paying attention to even notice it. And therefore, you can't build on those amazing things. By paying attention, we see God's hand at work in us. And I'm not talking about just being so focused on ourselves that we're of no use to anybody else. I'm saying, as we go through life, what are you feeling? Why are you feeling it? What are you doing? Why are you doing it? What what do you see the needs in front of you? What would be the best way to meet those needs? If you're willing to suffer, would your suffering be just a demonstration of, of you and how awesome you are? If you're sacrificing, would it cause people to be indebted to you? If you're serving, would it be perhaps getting in the way of somebody else's experience to serve? So we have to be in, uh, discerning and intentional about how we do what we do. And we can't do that unless we're fully present, paying attention, uh, reflecting on what we're feeling, why we're feeling it, instead of just saying fine. Fine is an acronym for feelings inside not expressed. And if we have unexpected expectations for others, we'll undermine uh, the integrity of our relationships. So Paul is content, not complacent, living intentionally, joyfully. Uh, I want to talk about this word content. Uh, As you know, it has two pronunciations, content, content, uh, two meanings. It's a noun and an adjective. Great content is valuable, useful information. Uh, great content is life-affirming, reality-based data. Uh, if, you know, garbage in, garbage out, if you're doing computer coding, uh, if you are uh, trying to read financial statements or produce them, uh, you want good content. Uh, instead of statistics, st- statistics don't lie. People lie with statistics. And so great content is powerful. And Paul knows he has phenomenal content in the gospel. Uh, because the best content is relevant to our ongoing capacity and adaptability. And the gospel does that by releasing God's power within us, helping us understand our own strengths, our own capacities and capabilities, and allowing us to be resourceful and resilient as we adapt moving through life. Not adapting chameleon-like, but adapting in terms of rising to the occasion, whether that's rising by humbling (laughs) or rising by stepping up and taking responsibility. So, Uh, For Paul, being content, based on this content, is gratitude, well-being, confidence in Christ. That's what he means by being content. Not being complacent, but being grateful, uh, having a sense of well-being, having an increasing sense of confidence in Christ and in his own capacities uh, to um, uh, see God work in him and through him. So being content is living our values, and living into our mission uh, in God. You have a mission. Part of your mission is whatever your major responsibilities are right now, but it's not limited to that. In the midst of our workaday world things, uh, going to work, raising kids, perhaps homeschooling your kids, uh, there's also uh, other things that God wants to do in and through you because of the spiritual gifts He's given you. Because you're going to be able to reach certain people and meet certain needs 
in the course of doing your everyday life. And this is all part of your mission. So being content in the Lord is creatively striving and stretching in God's grace. What is it, Lord, that you want to do in my marriage and through my marriage? What is it you want to do uh, in, in the context of me being a parent and encouraging other parents? What do you want me to do in the marketplace? What do you want me to do uh, to meet needs in my community, locally, globally? So what about you and me? Uh, being content is being responsible with our lives, not complacent about our lives, not taking our lives for granted. Oh, I'll have plenty of time. I'll have a long life. I'll get to that later. Well, that's my money, and I need it. Why would I share it? What's well, my time? Um, I want to use it for me, not, not to care for other people. Yes, you have to use your time uh, to refresh yourself. We need downtime. We need time alone. We need time together. Yes, your money uh, is, is yours to make choices of. But are we making those decisions about time, talent, treasure, about our network in the context of God's larger uh, vision revealed to us in Scripture? Because if not, we'll miss the phases of life. We'll miss the sense that there was something else that was, should have been going on here that didn't. And I'm not talking about high expectations for you being perfect. But if, we're, if, if we have a mind filled with Christ and a heart filled with Christ, and hands ready to serve Him and His purposes, as we go through the ordinary ages and stages and phases of life, we're going to see this wonderful uh, effect of God working in and through us. We won't then get through those and say, oh, I, I really wasn't paying attention to God. I wish I would, be, would have been paying attention because I can see some things I could have done along the way. With no extra effort, I could have done some things that would have made a big difference. And so... <laughs> Being complacent is naive, uncritical satisfaction with the status quo. It's good enough. It is what it is. Naive means you're not looking at it critically. That is, you're not trying to understand what's really going on here. Being satisfied uncritically means it's good. You know, I, I feel good, so everything must be good. Or I can't really change it, so if I don't feel good, oh well, I just have to get through it. Likewise, though, being complacent is also naive, uncritical dissatisfaction with the status quo. It's possible to be satisfied uncritically. It's possible to be dissatisfied uncritically. That is, again, these unexpressed expectations or assumptions you have. And you don't feel like people are paying attention to you or meeting your needs. Or you think things should be different or better or more fair. But because you're not actually engaged and intentionally processing this internally or with other people, you're living superficially and you have a very shallow point of view. What I've noticed is that when I, I stop making assumptions and internal judgments with a critical spirit, and I turn that into asking questions and seeking understanding, whole worlds open up. That way I can look critically in the, in the best way at the status quo, and I can avoid looking at things unnecessarily critically in the status quo. So complacency assumes one has arrived and no longer needs to grow, basically. I'm good enough. I know enough. Uh, it's a selfish way of, of absolving ourselves from having to care. I don't need to care. I didn't see anybody starving. I didn't see anybody suffering, so I'm, I'm, it's not on me. Versus saying, you know what? Part of my intentionality is to be proactive and say, what's going on? Not just in my being or in my family or my network of friends, in my congregation, but in the community and in the world. What would God be asking me to participate in? All needs aren't, aren't for me to respond to, but what needs should I be responding to? 
It would move me out of a place of complacency and into a place of deep caring and collaboration. So we can, we can understand um, a lot more than we think there is to understand about God, about ourselves, about relationships, about life, about freedom, about change, about, you know, about marriage, about parenting, about friendship, about growth, goodness, about love, about anything. The whole world, again, opens up to us. That makes life so much more interesting. If you want to be the most interesting person in the world, start being the most interested person in the world. So uh, let me say one more thing before we move on to the second point. Complacency lurks behind cynicism. Yeah, complacency is masked by cynicism. I don't really care. I'm super critical. I'm too cool to get involved. That's a, that's a complacency. It's a fearful, self-protective complacency. Uh, sometimes people use religiosity to mask complacency. They're so religious, but they're not really connected to God or to people in His name. They're going through the motions, and yet there's no deep satisfaction there. So they're really kind of bitter people, but religious. That's a, that's a byproduct of complacency. Again, probably driven by fear, or perhaps pride. Selfishness, I don't know. Depends on the situation. How about faux virtue? There's a lot of virtue signaling going on right now in our culture. That's a sign of complacency. A lot of lip service to justice and to peace and to well-being and any number of things. But there's actually no skin in the game to make a difference. A lot of, a lot of hat and no cattle. Then one more one, I want to give you an example here. Complacency lurks behind violence. And you might not think the two go together. No, violence sounds like a very assertive, aggressive, intentional thing. Uh, violence, true violence is about complacency. Why? Because it says, I can get away with it. I'm not accountable to God or the law or anybody. I can do this. This is why the whole Me Too movement has gotten so much energy. The violence that we do to people sexually, uh, socially, morally, emotionally, because we can get away with it. This is the violence of human trafficking. We can get away with this. This is the violence of, of, of people wearing masks and burning down buildings and assaulting people. I can get away with it. There's no accountability. Complacency is settling for anything less than the good life according to God. So let's then move on to the second point. Paul tells us the good life is living fully for God and trusting Him by faith. This is about a relationship grounded in God's Word, empowered through God's Spirit, supported by God's people. It's a formative and transformative experience of God in community with people who are uh, experiencing similar things. It's not competitive, it's not comparative, it's collaborative. It's an open-handed and open-hearted life. It's a thoughtful and informed life. It's humble enough to say, I don't know, can you help me understand that? Explain that to me. What does that mean? What should I do? Or if you're confident, you offer help to other people, right? And so it's rooted in God's Word so that we become self-aware. That's what God's Word does. It, it cuts down to the heart of who we are. Uh, that we become more humble. There's a God, it's not me. We become more wise. Ah, oh, this is what God's Word says about this. We become more discerning. Oh, what's right, what's wrong here? What's good, what's better? What's better, what's best? And we become more loving. Because at the end of the day, love is the most transformational attitude and behavior we can, we can own. And this all comes out of being rooted in God and His Word in the company of His people, empowered by His Holy Spirit. This is what Paul means about living the good life uh, fully for God, trusting in Him by faith. 
Uh, it makes us content knowing that we can press on in Christ who gives us strength to do just that. We don't need to cheat, lie, steal, slander, coerce, or destroy people to get things done. We can stand for what's right without trashing, burning, or defiling God's creation or the people in it. We might have to confront evil, but even that we can do in love. Uh, It might get messy, sometimes ugly, but what motivates us is restoration of people, not the destruction of people. The restoration of systems, not the destruction of systems. The, The restoration of cities and cultures and families and marriages, not the destruction of those. So we're not content with suffering. We're content God uses it for good purposes. We're not content with sacrifice. We're content that God uses our sacrifice for good purposes. We're not just content that we're serving and going home tired. <laughs> we're, we're content that God uses our service to bless people in His name. And that's transformational for us, even as it is for the people we're serving. or suffering with and for, or sacrificing with and for. Which brings us to the third point. If that first point is that the good life according to God is worth suffering for, the second point is that the good life is living fully for God and trusting Him by faith. The third point is this. Paul wants us to know that we possess identity and hope this world cannot provide or take away. What we experience in in the good life according to God is what God gives us by shaping our identity. Nothing and no one can take that away from you. Nothing can separate you from the love of God in Jesus Christ. You are a beloved child of God no matter what anybody else says to you or tells you. No matter what you sometimes feel about yourself. That's your identity rooted in Christ. And that's your hope rooted in Him. Rooted in His kingdom. That nothing and no one can rob you of or swap out for something less unless you let them. And so we celebrate Holy Communion because we're citizens of God's kingdom. We remember why we can be confident and courageous in Him. We repent of complacency. We commit to God's love for us in Christ. We realign our lives to actively participate in God's work redeeming the world. There's a a wonderful phrase in Hebrew. It's tikkun olam, the healing of the world. We get to participate in the healing of the world. That's what Holy Communion reminds us, that God Himself participated fully in Christ in healing the world. In this process of redemption, it will be brought to completion. And we likewise get to participate in that. Holy Communion reminds us of that. Uh, we live fully in the present, pressing on to embrace the new creation in Christ. Facing barriers by building bridges. So let me leave you with this thought. Our world desperately needs people partnering in the gospel of Christ. When you receive Christ, you become a full partner. Now, you might not feel like you really know the full capacity of your part in the partnership. That's true. But you will grow and you'll thrive as you go deeper and deeper, longer and further with Him in this partnership. The world desperately needs people partnering in the gospel of Christ. Let's be those people. Let's take hold of what God has taken hold of us in Christ. Let's press on following His lead, knowing that He is carrying us to this point of completion. He's with us every step of the way. And we experience His prosperity in spite of, and even through, suffering and sacrifice and serving others. Why? 
Uh, because at the end of it and throughout all of it, we get to celebrate his abiding presence with us. And so, Lord Jesus, we celebrate. We thank you with hearts full of gratitude, of peace, joy, love, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control for all that you've done and all that you are doing. Uh, we thank you for Paul's example and his words helping us to understand what is ours, the legacy of the good life that you have bequeathed to us in Jesus Christ. We thank you and praise you for this. In Jesus' holy name, amen. Well, on that night that he was betrayed, Jesus took bread, and having blessed it, he broke it, saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. His suffering, his sacrifice, his service allows us to celebrate Holy Communion, to celebrate that we are beloved sons and daughters by God, of God, by faith in Christ. In the same manner, he took that cup, and having blessed it, he said, this is the, the new covenant in my blood. Do this in remembrance of me whenever you do this. So as you celebrate Holy Communion where you are, or maybe if you celebrate it later today, keep this in mind. This is not just symbolic language. This is pointing to a substance, the substance of God at work in this world, specifically personally at work in you and through you, to achieve His purposes that anyone who receives him as Savior and Lord, would experience the good life. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the, the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and, and, and shine his face on you. May you glow with the presence of God and reflect his glory wherever you go, with whomever you are, both now and forevermore. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Uh, enjoy the rest of your day, and thank you for joining us in worship today.